Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Well, you're in Zechariah. Now, Zechariah chapter number one, and just to remind you a little bit in context, uh, this is a fascinating book, really, as you think about a book story, as often is the case that Zechariah is not one of those that would be at the top of the list. Uh, too often we're familiar with the New Testament, and I think that a lot of this has to do with the, uh, the advanced of Reformed theology. I think some of this has to do with the advanced of replacement theology, which are two different things, but they're kissing cousins. Uh, but the idea that so much of the Old Testament now, uh, that this New Testament era church, and I don't mean a local assembly, I mean an ambiguous one, has replaced the Old Testament Israel. And as a result, when someone reads the Old Testament, they read it through the eyes of this dispensation. They read it through the eyes of, uh, in many of the cases, according to Romans chapter 9 through 11, they read it through the eyes of a Gentile and read it through the eyes of the Jew. Uh, they read it with the consideration of what they know. And when you look back over the Old Testament, the things that don't make sense, you know what you have a chance, to, uh, a temptation to do? Just kind of close your eyes and blow right through it. And I think so often that's where the minor prophets are. Uh, there are aspects in the Old Testament that seize our attention. Uh, for instance, the cry of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, um, holy, 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 I'm a man of unclean lips, you know, that grasp our attention. There are certain other passages in Isaiah that grasp our attention. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8 that is repeated in the New Testament, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word thereof of our Lord standeth forever. Uh, later in verse 31, uh, it talks about uh, those that faint not, but uh, they shall run and not be weary, shall walk and not faint. Uh, the idea of the eagle and the strength there, the verse is not coming to me, but I think you understand what I'm referencing. There's certainly, when you get to the book of Daniel, a number of imageries that pop out. We think about the fiery furnace. We think about Daniel and the den of lions. But really, as it remains for the Old Testament, much of our familiarity really comes to certain stories or a couple of verse lines that we might have. And then we get into the Psalms and the general Proverbs and a narrative of the history of Israel. And we miss that this is still the Word of God. And it's still inspired. It's still preserved for us. And therefore, its truth can still be trusted even in this day. Hebrews in chapter 13 and verse 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in that, there is great truth. For the attributes that we know about God existed even in the times of Zechariah. And so there's much that you and I as just cursory students of the Word of God and even uh, expounding upon that, there's much that we have to study to really glean out of these books. For instance, it helps us to understand what the geopolitical situations of the world were. And we spent some time in Zechariah speaking about the various kings that predated this. It helps us to know what the current political situations were. Uh, for instance, uh, it had been before Zechariah, just under 20 years before, uh, when Zerubbabel and Joshua returned with Ezra to build the temple. They got started, uh, they made some headway, and then through a series of events, somewhat with outside the realm of their control, they ceased from building. I gave you a number of reasons. One of it was Ezra chapter 3 talks about the Samaritan, the people that had been in the land. Uh, they were not eternally in the land. They did not predate the Jew, but when the Jews were out in the diaspora and there in Babylon and other places, these other individuals were brought in to settle in the land and they now inhabited it. 
And they, the Samaritans, seems to be the obvious choice, uh, they now had a claim to land that was not theirs. And of course, if Israel, if the temple's rebuilt and the wall's rebuilt, it won't be long before there'll be a Jewish civil government. And what would they stand to lose? Well, they'd stand to lose the land and houses that they have possessed these last 50 to 70 years. And so they're not for this. There's a conflict there. I mentioned to you that the people of Israel, the Jews that had returned, now had misplaced priorities. Uh, their hearts ebbed and waned with the struggles of the days. There's a level of, of uh, indifference. Uh, chapter 1 of um, Haggai, and I believe verse 6, references the famine that had been existent. So there's other concerns that were there, and no doubt war that had occurred between the kingdoms surrounding Israel had played a major role. But for the better part of approximately 16 years, they've made a little headway during the time of Ezra, and it'd be 16 years, and everything had ceased. And God would send two prophets, Haggai, and Haggai really is a blunt fella. He reminds you a little bit of the message of John the Baptist. He is straight to the point and probably hurts your feelings. Uh, but he challenged the people. He called them to carpet. And they began in September of 520 B.C., a well-documented date, to rebuild the temple. And then God would send along another prophet five months later named Zechariah. And Zechariah, primarily instead of being pointed like Haggai, he'll have the ministry of consolation. He'll have the ministry of comfort. And in these, uh, I think some 14 chapters of Zacharias compared to two chapters of Haggai, he mostly is deriving comfort. And it is through him and the comfort that God has given him that he'll place on the ears of the children of Israel that they will complete the temple in four years' time. And it will be finished. It will later be modified during the time of Herod the Great. But until it's destroyed in 70 A.D., it will stand for close to, uh, what's that, 550 years, it will stand. And it will be at the center of the Jewish society and ultimately will be the same temple, more or less, that Jesus Christ would go in and out of. It will be the same temple that Peter and James and John go in and out of and all the great glory of God that is shown upon them. But at this particular time that Zechariah is writing, there is no nation of Israel as you and I know it. There's no civil elections, there's no uh, magistrates, there's no um, military force, there's no temple, there's no walls. There, Jerusalem's just a ghost of a city, a shell of her former self that people ride in and out of. And it's the direct result of sin that created that and of their utter rebellion, the inhabitants of that fair city, against God and against His rightful place in their life. You know, that reminds us in sense by way of application and that so often happens in the lives of believers, doesn't it? And we have the indwelling of the Spirit of God. We're saved. We're bought by His precious blood. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians for us. And all oh, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that should shine in and through us in this dark world we live. But... We lean to our own understandings. We walk not according to the precepts of the Word of God. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and then judgment, the consequence occurs. And many of there is a Christian whose life is a shell of what it really could be. Does God cast them off aside forever? No. 
that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. That's a level of comfort. By the way, that, that attempt at a segue into this message that I'm making this evening is the very theme of the passages we will look at this evening. A comfort to the children of Israel. God remembers is really our theme. That's the name of Zechariah. Jehovah remembers. And tonight as we look into these passages, He will remember His consolations. He will remember His comfort to His people that He knows, that He yearns for, that He loves, and to see them restored. That's the promise here in Zechariah chapter number 1, verses 7 through 17. Now as we read through this a moment ago, I'd be remiss if I did not take a moment and say as you just run through this, uh, your mind can have a tendency of going a lot of different ways. I mean, you read there about a man riding on a red horse. You'll read about red horses and speckled horses and white horses. You come down and find about myrtle trees. And uh, I knew a lady named Myrtle and a beach named Myrtle, but a myrtle tree is a different thing. Um, you'll find about various angels that are present. You'll find about the angel of Jehovah. You'll find about the Lord of hosts several years. You'll find three I am's in the following verses down first 14 through 16. And so just addressing this to a little distinction, let me start out with some of the movement here that we have, particularly in verse 8. Here is the first of these visions that Zechariah has. Um, and it's about, as I said, five months after the temple has begun its building. And by night, he says that he beheld a man riding on a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were the red horses, speckled and white. Let's speak a moment about these red horses and then move to these, uh, these characters that are present, or perhaps the horses that are present. As we think of the myrtle tree, I often, as I think of a myrtle tree, think in my Western mind as a hedge. Uh, that would often be planted in and around the shrubbery of a home. Uh, but in this culture and in this setting, a myrtle tree really is a uh, tra tree that is a fragrant plant that grows usually in depressed areas, in low-lying areas, and can move even into the essence of becoming visibly a tree. It's interesting, the Feast of the Tabernacles uh, that is mentioned over in the book of Leviticus, they were to gather four different types of tree branches and to intercourse them, and they needed water that came from a fresh spring. And they were to, uh, then to take and build for them small tabernacles, the, the scripture, the Hebrew word is sukkot, but the small uh, booths. You'll find, sometimes find the children of Israel dwelt in booths. Uh, and really, after the time that they come into the land, they did this during the 40 years of wilderness wandering. But once they came into the land, the Feast of Tabernacles was something that, that just really uh, was forgotten. It just got kind of shoved in the corner. And they never observed it anymore. Not as a whole thing, not as a national thing. And that would be the same through the times of David and uh, all the way through the kings. But now, you're past the kings, you're in the diaspora. And Ezra and some 30, 40, 50,000 people have returned to him, uh, turned with him to the land of Israel. Their purpose is to rebuild the temple. Well, before they rebuild the temple, they seek to acquaint the people with the word of God. And Ezra being a priest, and really a legacy line of priests, specifically there were some priests, his forebearers, that were of great renown in the Old Testament. And so Ezra would take the word of God, he would build him a wooden pulpit, and he would be there all that had understanding as the scriptures. I suppose those that didn't were in the nursery, uh, all that had understanding. And so he's there and he's teaching and he begins to go from morning to evening, teaching and not just telling. 
Uh, we have this idea today that biblical teaching should never have an application. Well, that's not what Ezra thought. As he teaches, he helps them to know the sense of something. He's doing what a real teacher does. A real teacher does not just tell you that one plus one is two. They show you how that occurs. And they build upon that application to the next principle and the next principle. And Ezra is doing such. Well, shortly time thereafter, a day or so, the, uh, the elders of Israel, they come unto him and say, Hey, you've mentioned this feast of the tabernacle. And it was in the law of Moses. And... Uh, it seems to us we don't know anything about it. And in Ezra chapter 8, round about verse 15, what you find is that according to, uh, to Ezra chapter 8, they had not observed nationally the commanded feast of tabernacles since the day of Joshua, the son of Nun. All of their history, they had let this go. Now at that particular feast was a time, it was one of the most joyous of all celebrations. It was a time where you build a booth, Literally like a, a covered tent. You build it outside your house. And you would dwell in that for the period of time. You would commune with your family. You would speak good things into your families. You would be reminded in the Word of God and it was one of the grand feasts of joy. Yet for all these years, they had nothing really to truly joy in the Lord like they ought to have joyed. I suppose it might have been replaced by the building of the temple and Solomon's time, which had been built more than 400 years before this one was built. Perhaps that had replaced it, and they said, we're going to go there, but there was no personal communion that was to be had. And here the children of Israel, uh, those that had returned from exile, that small portion of them, instilled this as once again something that they were going to do. They were going to find joy and rejoicing in the person and work of the Almighty God despite the circumstances that were around them. I think what Nehemiah would say later on, that the joy of the Lord was our strength. Sometimes what a great joy in the life of a believer it is to bask in the person and work of the Almighty God and not to dwell in the sorrow that exists in this moment or might exist in that moment tomorrow. Too often the sorrows and trials of this life rob us of the rich joy that is found exclusively in Jesus Christ. And so too was the place in Ezra's time. And so they would go out in Ezra chapter 8. They began to gather of these different branches. And one of these branches were branches from the myrtle tree. There is a connection between the myrtle tree and this wonderful, joyous time that would be the Feast of the Tabernacle. And these myrtles, once again, found in low-lying places. They were a constant reminder. Their presence was a constant reminder of the promises that God had gave to the nation of Israel. In Leviticus chapter 26, he said, I will not cast them away forever. I will not abhor thee. I will not destroy thee. And just as though they could find the myrtle trees prospering, so too God would not see them cast away forever. I'm reminded of Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 10. And speaking of this, the Lord said, talking through the mouth of Jeremiah, looking down the road after the diaspora, he said, For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I make full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee. You won't find the Neo-Babylonian Empire today. You won't find the old Babylonian Empire that existed with the Samaritans many years, but you won't find Nebuchadnezzar's empire existent today. It's faded in its existence. You won't find the Medo and the Persian Empire anymore. You won't find the Grecian Empire anymore. 
And you won't even find the remnants of the Roman Empire in existence. All these nations, the Assyrians, you'll be hard-pressed to find any Assyrians. You won't find the grand Egyptian nation as the Scripture mentions it. It's distinct from the state of Egypt that is existent today. The Lord promised in Jeremiah, I'll make a full end of the nations that I have scattered thee. I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. What a mighty treatise. Just as this myrtle tree would flourish in the depressed areas, even outside the, the ancient temple walls, so it was a somewhat of a symbol that God would preserve His people as well. I would think as you look in this passage where he's talking about this man standing in among the myrtle trees, I think the myrtle trees are a reference to the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel. I want to call it a nation so badly, but in our context, civilly of a nation, there is no nation of Israel. But it is the Jewish people that it speaks of. Now notice, if you will, uh, another thing that is present here. You've got a man riding on a red horse. We come down to the end of verse 8, we find out uh, that following him were red horses, and by context, speckled horses, and by context, white horses. And time will not permit us, but when we come to chapter 6, you'll find out that there's an additional group of horses that is present in chapter 6. Uh, these horses, a red horse, seems to always stand for a level of judgment in the Scripture. The white horse stands for victory. You might think of Revelation chapter 19, the Lord descending on a white horse. And a speckled horse, many believe, might have been a blend of the two. But nonetheless, these horses seem to be seated with travelers. And they do the work of vengeance and victory as the divine agents of God in and amongst the governments of the day. I'll revisit that in a moment. But move back, if you will, to this man that's riding on this red horse. Uh, you find him there in verse number 8, a man riding upon the red horse. And then in verse number 9, this is an important character because there's several characters here. The man riding on the red horse. And then in verse number 9, you've got uh, Zechariah speaking with an angel. And he asks of that angel, my Lord, lowercase, that's an important consideration. And the angel that talked with me. So we're going to call him a messenger angel. And then in verse number 10, the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord, L-O-R-D, Jehovah, hath sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So now we've got a reference to Jehovah. We've got a reference to the man in the myrtles. And now we've still got this messenger angel. You come down and look into verse number 12. And the angel of the Lord answered and said, Lord of hosts. Now I would reference here that the Lord of hosts and the Lord in verse number 10 are the same person. But that brings an interesting thing. Who is this messenger angel? Who is this angel of the Lord? And who is the Lord of hosts? Three characters. I think the messenger angel is one of the many angels that God would send to interact with humanity or with the Jewish people. It could be Gabriel. Gabriel was something of a messenger angel given in Daniel chapter 9 and verses 1 and 2. Uh, Gabriel was the one that was sent to Mary in the Gospel of Luke account that would come unto her and be a messenger unto her. Uh, this angelic being here that Zacharias interacts with is an angel, but that seems to be the scope and limit of what he is. But yet there's a man here that is found to be in the myrtle trees. I think that this is the same individual that we find in verse number 12 called the angel of the Lord. 
And I would submit to you that this angel of the Lord, this man that's among the myrtle trees, is really the technical term is a Christophany. It means that it is an appearance of Christ before his incarnation. He's a powerful figure to behold. But Christ appeared definitively in the Old Testament prior to Luke chapter 2. Hold your place here in Zechariah and let's just let's visit, let's visit two passages. I've got three. We could have more, but I want you to turn to Genesis, um, I believe, 18. Genesis 18. Genesis 19 happens to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah. And God sending angels there to uh, really, in a sense, evict Lot. Um, but look in Genesis 18. I won't take time to read all of these verses and save this read later. But if you will, in Genesis chapter 18 and verses 1 and 2, And the Lord appeared unto him, and by reference that's Abraham, and the plans of Mamre, and he sat in the tent of the door in the heat of the day, Abraham did. And he, Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. When he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door, bowed himself toward the ground, and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. And you, of course, know there's a great meal that is prepared for them. Look in verse number 13. And the Lord, this one among the three that is present, he's eating with them. I would note that Abraham's bowed to him, and the angel never dismisses this formality of worship. He rather receives it. In verse 13, the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did, thy, uh, wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, sure, Shall I of surety bear a child which am old? He's right there present, dialoguing with him. Is anything too hard for the Lord? For time's sake, you look down in verse number 17. And the Lord said, Shall I hide Abraham from that thing which I do? Here's someone that's communicating, that's hearing, that's eating, and is being worshipped. It's not an angel. It's a pre-incarnated Christ. It's not the only time that you'll find this one. Look over in the book of Joshua. This is perhaps my favorite, my personal favorite, Christophany. Look, if you will, in Joshua chapter 5 there, having, I believe, just crossed over the water Jordan, and there on the eve of inheriting the land and taking of Jericho. And no doubt in Joshua's mind, there's many fears that are present. I would cycle our mind back to Joshua 1 and verse 8. But there's doubt, there's fear. They've crossed Jordan in floodplain. Uh, Moses, they're leaving behind on the other side. He's passed away. And this is really Joshua's first soul flight leadership. It's the first time he's led all of the people and they're going into battle. And the battle plan is unique. You're going to march around the city and blow your horns and I'll give you the victory. That's how it's going to happen. It comes in in chapter 5, Joshua, and I want you to draw your eyes down to verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes. Joshua, man of war, he is, uh, he's reconnoitering the area. You know, He's gone in close to Jericho. They cannot see him, but he's looking 
at the battle lines and he's looking at what's got to happen and he's looking about the difficulty that lies and he lifts up his eyes and he looks and behold a man stood over against him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said, this is an amazing statement to think of his humanness for a moment. Art thou for us or for our adversaries? I would tell you, I don't know how to be asking that question. If I saw this man, as Joshua saw him, I think my first inclination would be to run the other way. But Joshua's going to ask him, you for us or against us? You for us or for our adversaries? I don't know what the plan was if he would have said, I'm for Jericho. What are you going to do, Joshua? What are you going to do? I think in Joshua's courageousness and the promise and the faith that he had in the Almighty God, he probably went after him. But note it's revealed. And he said, nay. No, neither. But as captain of the host of the Lord, I am now come. Notice what Joshua does. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? Notice the response of the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoes from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Who's this captain of King's host? This, this is not Michael, the archangel. This is not Gabriel. This is certainly not Lucifer. It's a Christophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of God in physical form. And when Joshua bows his head in worship, this angel of the Lord does not refuse that worship. When this being, this Christophany forms and commands him to do something, what's he do? He obeys it. This is not a mere angel. This is, in fact, the embodiment of the Godhead mightily in the person of God, uh, or the person of Jesus Christ. You're back in Zechariah, and I would submit to you the man in and amongst the myrtle tree is likened to this captain of the Lord's army. He's likened to the Lord that Abraham would see in the plains of Mamre. He is in his pre-incarnate self. Oh, the imagery there of Joshua, he has his sword drawn. I'm reminded of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that oppose him. Marvelous statement. We have wrapped up our minds around too genteel a Savior, uh, too peaceable a Savior, uh, too, uh, too feminine a Savior, and miss the great imagery of truth as to the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded to the message of Christ to his seven churches in the Revelation. He describes his eyes of a flame and a sword of fire. A Christ that we honor with our praises and our prayers. The Christ that has died for me and died for you is indeed the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is to be feared. He is to be respected. He is to be reverenced. This is that individual riding upon that red horse. I do believe the man in the midst of the myrtle trees. I would submit to you that he is in fact the very essence of the Godhead mightily. Let me show you one other thing about this angel of the Lord. Look at verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord. It's quite interesting, just that phrase. King James, I think, does an excellent job. A marvelous job here. The angel. You notice how that's singular? 
I searched this this afternoon. How many angels are there in heaven? A lot. Correct answer. This has a definitive article before it. He didn't say an angel of the Lord. It's the. It's definitive. It was a certain one. In fact, as you look through the scriptures, you'll never find anywhere from Genesis to Revelation that you'll find reference of angels of the Lord. You'll find angels of God, but you will not find any angels of the Lord. But here in this context, you have a definitive article, the singular angel of the Almighty God. Notice what he's doing in verse 12. Look over this. He said, The angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast indignation these threescore and ten years, these seventy years? I submit to you down the Lord of hosts, the Lord Sabaoth, that's the Hebrew phrase for it. This is the Almighty God. There's a conversation. You've got one member of the Godhead the pre-incarnate Christ, praying to another member of the Godhead on behalf of a certain aspect of humanity. Now I ask you something, Bible students. Is there any place, anywhere you might think of any other time, where that type of thing occurred? I would submit to you John chapter 17. John chapter 17, the Lord has finished that last supper with his saints. He says, come out. I want you to pray here in the garden with me. You guys gather here and he goes a stone's throw further. And you have recorded the verbatim prayer of the Almighty God embodied in flesh prior to his crucifixion. And he's praying in John chapter 17. You know what he's praying for? His disciples and those that will know him. That's me and that's you. In that particular text, John 17, you have Jesus Christ praying to God the Father for some of His believers. Marvelous the entity here in verse 12. You have the pre-incarnate Christ interceding for Jerusalem particularly and some of its inhabitants to the Almighty God in heaven. I submit to you that the Lord of hosts is the supreme Godhead and that this man in the myrtle, this angel of the Lord is in fact the pre-incarnation of Jesus Christ. So he's present and his intercession. These riders, rather on the speckled or the, the red horses or the white horses that are present, there's great curiosity that Zechariah has. And so he says in verse 9 to the messenger, the angel that is beside him, Lord, my Lord, what are these? The angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show you these what, uh, these, these what these be. The man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, so now this is that pre-incarnate Christ. He hears him. I don't know why he wouldn't. He's all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. These are they whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. Isn't that quite interesting? Now, I recall over in Job chapter 2, that Satan go, went to and forth as accuser. I'm reminded in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 
regarding Satan, our adversary, as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, that he is the prince of the power of the air, that he has a level of principality that exists, that he is, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the God of this world. The imagery given clear both in Old and New Testament about Satan is he and his minions roam this earth and there's a level of potency that they have with the governments and the affairs of this cosmos. This is something interesting that Zechariah beholds. This man in the myrtle, this rider of the red horse, Zechariah does not understand this vision he sees. He says, what are these? And as he has asked the angel next to him, the angel in the midst of the myrtle answers him. He said, these are the riders. Notice what he said. These are the riders. These that God has sent forth that walk to and fro. That word walk, if you circle it, has the idea of dominion. They walk to and fro. You know, isn't it a great interest that God has his mighty travelers as well? We often focus on the power of the prince that is. We focus on the prince of the power of the air, but we sometimes forget that there is a sovereign God that is greater than the God of this world. He equally has His ministers in this world. By the way, as you look at these, note the report that's given in verse number 11. And they answer the angel of the Lord all of these writers, this convocation of writers, they answer the angel of the Lord. We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still in its rest. They have engaged with divine approval, the agencies, the governments of this world, and they solicited a number of problems that is going to bring about the intercessory prayer in verse number 12. Let me give you these four problems. Number one, judgment. This is part of that intercessory. Judgment has fully come. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. All of the inhabitants that were, uh, that were allowed to be used of God to punish and chastise Jerusalem, there it, notice what the scripture says. The earth is sitteth still and is at rest. A few times in human history that it could be said the world is still and at rest. But I would note that when Jerusalem was in ruin, the world rested. And when Jerusalem is exceeding and abundant and blessed, the world rages. If you do not believe in the diabolical uh, attacks of the evil one, particularly as it relates to the things God loves, this verse should convince our heart. Said so they're still. Judgment has come. Jerusalem has been in great disrepair. And the world and all the governments could care less about it. That's why that Ezra has received a commission by Cyrus to go and rebuild the temple. And yet they lock them up. The, uh, the powers, the civil powers that be would lock them up in a court battle, if you will, and call 16 years in which the temple will not be built. The world was at rest. They could care less what happened to Israel. Later, we'll get there in verse number 15, Jerusalem is afflicted. Note the opening words of this intercession in verse number 12. The O Lord of hosts, the angel answers and said, O Lord of hosts, how long? That's a marvelous praise, how long? 
it couples with it faith and expectation and grand longing. It's the same statement that Isaiah would make in that famed chapter of Isaiah 6 where he saw the Lord high and lifted up and he says, Then I said, O Lord, how long? How long will it be? It's expectation. It's faith. It denotes with it a grand longing that is present. How long? How long will it be, O Lord, before Jerusalem will be cared for? Until she's in grand repair. And note here the Lord of hosts answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. You circle that word comfortable. It has the idea of words of solace. He brought calm to my heart. Zacharias, he, he is a man of God. He loves the land of Israel that was there. It is the land of, in one sense, uh, his nativity. It, it is the land of hope. It is the land of promise. There's land of blessing that was given. There's future promises that has been made. He loves those things God has loved. Yet there is no way with his current vision that he can spy out a way to bring to pass all the things that are. There must needs be a divine interference on their behalf. And the angel speaks to him good words, and comfortable words, solace, if you will, consolation. And so the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts. I want you to notice the three I am's that he gives him. In verse, verse number 15, he said, uh, or rather in verse number 14, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. In verse 15, I am very sore displeased. In verse 16, I am returned to Jerusalem. Going back to verse 14, the Lord in reference to Zion and Jerusalem, He says, I'm jealous for it. If you want me to glow and burn with great vitriol and anger, touch my city. That's what it means to be jealous of it. I don't think I've ever in my life experienced something quite like that. In fact, in the Old Testament, if you want an understanding of the jealousy of God, you look at the response, what should be a natural response by a husband if someone deals wrongly with his wife. That's as close as I can come to it. There are very few things in this life I've ever seen that type of jealousy with. But when the Lord wants to espouse that kind of jealousy so that humanity understands, He says, how long? Let me give you some comfortable words. I love Jerusalem. I'm jealous over them. I burn, grow greatly over them. In verse 15, in verse 15, he remarks, I am displeased. I am sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. They're still in at rest. They're going about their lives. They're making their fortunes. They're having their wealth. And they could care less what happens to the city of God. God said, I'm sore displeased. But then he's going to give another specific anger, reason for his anger. Notice the last part of verse 15. He says, For I was but a little displeased. And they helped forward the affliction. You know what he's saying? I wanted the inhabitants of Jerusalem punished. And I had my means by which I wanted that to occur. But when using these Gentile instruments to do my will, they went beyond my command. I want them punished. But instead of just afflicting them, you are extreme in your measures. 
you reveled in their pain and anguish. I'm displeased, sore displeased. And finally, you see in verse number 16, I am returned. I'll comment again on verse 15 in just a second. But in verse 16, he said, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts. And a lion shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem, crying yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperities shall yet be spread abroad. The Lord shall yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. If you circle that word again, He shall yet comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. He comforts him with three reminders. I am jealous, I am sore displeased at the wicked, and I am returned to bring about blessing to them. While all these nations were concerned with their selfish interests, God dwelt among the myrtles. God dwelt with Israel. God gave great care for Israel. And though he used these Gentile nations to bring about chastisement, God was vexed sorely over their treatment of those things and people that God greatly loved. I mentioned a moment ago the, the relationship there of jealousy seen in, in how a husband might react if someone mistreats his wife. You want to get a good image of what happens in verse 15. It's the idea of a father paddling his young child and a stranger comes in and takes a bigger stick and starts wailing on that child. What would be your response to it? Any good father would not be pleased at all. And God uses these familiar responses to extract in the message that He has given to Israel, to exclaim to the message He has given to Zechariah, His great care and affection and love for Israel. There's God's relationship to Israel. There's God's relationship to other nations. And there's the other nations' relationship with God. But note this, God is never pleased when strangers meddle in His relationship to Israel. Listen to what Isaiah wrote in the 47th chapter of Isaiah. And uh, verse number 4, he speaks, um, I'm sorry, in verse number 6, he said, I was wroth with my people. I have polluted my inheritance and given them in thine hand. Thou didst show them no mercy, and upon the ancient hast thou very heavily laid thy yoke. God said, I have returned, and I'm now going to make right those things that have been broken down. He's going to bring about this comfort, as you'll see over these verses, in three specific ways. I won't belabor this point because I think you'll understand them um, readily. We've covered them. But number one, he gives comfort to Israel because he provides the angel of the Lord in their midst. Despite the fact that they were downcast, despite the fact that they were despondent, despite the fact that they had been utterly defeated, God chose not to dwell in the powerful places of the heathen, but rather God dwelt in the very presence of his people. Why isn't that a way God comforts us today? He knows His children. And my sheep know my voice. And despite the trouble of life, God's presence shall always be there. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He comforts His people. He remembers His consolation in the fact that He is interceding and yearning for His people. And friend, that's the same God that we have today. Just as God interceded for Israel, and just as he yearned for Israel, so he does for you and I. I've already related John 17. He's prayed for us. He's yearned for us. He loves us with a holy love. He has commended his love towards us. He has besought us. 
He is desirous of us. You can't get greater consolation than his presence and his prayers. And yet there's a third consolation that we as believers have, and it's the same consolation, a very similar consolation that Zachariah sees. It's a promise of future blessing. Isn't that the essence of John chapter 14? Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I will come again, I will receive you to myself, that where I am there ye may also be. Now it's interesting, some will look at this passage of Zechariah and say all of this took place. But I would submit to you that verse there in verse 17. I shall yet comfort Zion. I shall yet choose Jerusalem. Certainly some of this did take place. Certainly four years later the temple was built. Certainly there's a small population that has returned. Certainly Nehemiah some years later will go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But those facts in the present that existed in Zechariah's time do not match the prophecies of Isaiah and Ezekiel and for that matter even the end of the book of Zechariah. When you speak of the consolation of Zion, you're not just seemingly picking on the fact that they built a temple 1,500, 2,500 years ago. You're rather looking ahead to one day that they would have the very presence of God there. God's presence is not in Israel today like it one day will be. In fact, if you go to Ezekiel, we spoke out of that a week or so ago and I gave you an outline of Ezekiel. But essentially the last half of Ezekiel deals with the millennial kingdom. You know how Ezekiel chapter 48 ends? Ezekiel 48, it ends with this thought. I think it's verse 35. In talking about Jerusalem, the name of that city shall be the Lord is there. That's not the Jerusalem of today. That's the Jerusalem of the millennial kingdom. This is a dual prophecy given. God has remembered His consolations to Israel. He remembered it 70 years after they went in, con, uh, in the captivity and brought about a great uh, joy of their heart and allowed them to be reestablished as a people for the bringing forth of the Messiah and the bringing forth of the temple being built for that Messiah to be in. Yes, He brought about that consolation. But one day the consolation of Israel will be in its fullness when another temple is built. And when the Lord God rules and reigns from a literal city of Jerusalem that has a literal temple on it, and that lies yet ahead. The last eight chapters of Ezekiel, chapter 40 through 48, deal with the building of a temple in great and glorious detail. In Jeremiah chapter 31, and verse 38 through 40, he talks about Jerusalem being rebuilted. And Jeremiah the prophet writes, Those days shall come, saith the Lord, the city shall be built to the Lord, the tower of Haniel, unto the gates of the corner, and the measuring line shall go forth over it against the hill of Garab, and shall compass about even to Goath. And the whole valley of the dead bodies, and the ashes, and the fields of the brook Kidron, and to the corner of the horse gate, toward the eastward, shall be holy unto the Lord. It shall not be plucked up, nor thrown down any more forever. That's future. That's not past. There'll be a day that the city of Jerusalem will be, be rebuilt in all of its glory and splendor and will never, ever, 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 ever again be plucked down. That's the consolation that God has provided to Zechariah and that lies yet in the future. Of course, there's the pledge of Isaiah chapter 60 and I won't read this, but verses 4 through 9, a prosperous of all the Judean cities. And then you come to Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 1. And he gives a fifth future blessing that there'll be an eternal comfort 
for Zion. The Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land and the strangers shall be joined with them and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. Marvelous, I could keep reading in that chapter. The world had all of its affairs, all of its joy, all of its rest. Yet God's heart was with Israel and those believers. I seek not to replace, but there's a great lesson for you and I. The Lord remembers us. And the Lord remembers every consolation and every promise He's ever made to any of His people at any time. That's why Peter, considering them, called them exceeding great and precious promises. It's the great motive in our Christian life where we do not attempt to walk by faith, but, or rather to walk by sight, but to walk by faith. You know, it is the great exceeding knowledge of a holy God who has confounded the wise of this world with His foolishness. God does not look out among the sons of men and select the noble and the wealthy, and the mighty, and the prestigious. But James put it this way, he's with the humble. He's with those that humbly walk with their God. And God remembers his consolation to them. Such was the great hope for Zechariah, and such is our great hope today. The Lord remembers his consolation. Let's stand with the Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.